Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, so I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken." For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. It's my prayer that your word would take root would be planted deeply in the hearts and minds of your people. Father, reading a text such as the one before us in Genesis chapter 3 is a reminder of how important your word really is to us. It's a reminder of how important you are, God. Your word, your truth, your authority. I pray, Father, that this church family would be a people that stands strong on your word, even in the midst of conflict and hostility around us. May we see and hear what you have to say. And may we obey. Thank you for your word. 
I pray your Holy Spirit would teach us and apply these truths from your word to our lives that we might then walk in obedience in the power of your spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn with me for just a moment to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. Who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The advent of Christ, the arrival of Jesus from heaven to earth. Both Matthew and Luke, in particular, give us a good picture of the situation surrounding the events leading up to and including the birth of Jesus, born of the Virgin, named Mary, conceived, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit. The angel who spoke to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21, prophesied that this son, born of Mary, would save his people from their sins. And the accounts that we have in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 2 are familiar to many of us here. But over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the advent of Christ through a few different lenses. There are many wonderful truths, no doubt, embedded in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 2, these accounts of Christ's birth. And some of these truths will come to the forefront over the next five weeks. But the scriptures, as far back as the book of Genesis, we'll see here today, the scriptures show us that there's more to the advent than perhaps we've ever imagined. I mean, many of us, read the Advent account of Christ and we see it all in the context of first century when Jesus was actually born into this world. Few of us see or even think about the Advent through the lens of God's timetable revealed to us in the whole of Scripture, not just in the Gospels. Few of us realize, perhaps, the necessity of Christ's arrival and the events leading up to his arrival. We seldom see or think of how God orchestrated the sending of his Son. Galatians chapter 4, 3 through 5 says, When we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world... But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Galatians 4 speaks of bondage that once held us. Question here from the text is, how did we arrive in that place of bondage? Romans chapter 5, verse 12 would be a good place to go. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We arrived in the place of bondage through one man. Adam, as we'll see in the text today. 
The Bible says that it's through this one man that sin came on the scene in this place we call the inhabited world. And when sin came, death followed and spread to all men. Why? Yes, because of the one man's sin. But also because of the sinful nature which saturated all men from that point forward. Death spread to all men because all sinned, all took part as well. We see in the Bible, Romans 5, 14 says, Death continued to reign from Adam to Moses. And with Moses comes the giving of God's law. And then a question might be asked, what what was the purpose of, of the law? Why the law? Well, the Bible gives us an answer to that question in Galatians 3.19. In fact, it poses that very question. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of what? Transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The law was added because of transgressions. The law, a few verses later in Galatians 3, was to serve as a tutor to bring one to whom? To Christ, that you might be what? Justified by faith. You know, just as an aside, we we ought to praise God. No one is justified by the works of the law. The Bible says that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11. The Bible also says that by deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now Romans 3 says, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Listen to this. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is not some new idea. The law and the prophets witness to this. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. That's good news, church. That's part of, a central part of this glorious gospel. Not only was the law added because of transgressions and not only did the law serve as a tutor taking one to Christ, but the law also brought a curse along with it. Galatians 3 verse 10 speaks of this. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, the law which man in his flesh and his earthen tent is not able to keep completely on account of sin. God saw fit through Jesus Christ to take care of that problem. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us From the curse of the law. Praise the Lord. Having become a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That goes back to Deuteronomy 21. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's interesting that when you look in Romans chapter 8 and you see verses 3 and 4 and you find this out. You say, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he took on the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. Those are the words from Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. He came, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, listen to this, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And then there's that wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2. All of these weave together, and there are more, but these are just rich. And they weave together, and they help provide some context for the passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, I love this passage because it speaks directly to where we're going to be here in a moment. Beginning in verse 14, for he himself, that's Christ, is our peace. Listen to this. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh... The enmity, there's the word, 
He's abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. You see, Christ himself, Romans 10 verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, listen to this, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through what means? The cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. Putting to death the enmity. We're going to read about this enmity. God pronounces this enmity back in Genesis chapter 3. The enmity that begins with enmity between the woman and the serpent. And it's going to keep going. But there's going to be a seed of the woman who is going to arrive on the scene. And he's going to truly crush the head of the serpent. And he's going to put to death the enmity that's existed. The cross, says Paul, is the means by which Christ reconciles man to God and Jews to Gentiles, which flows out of being reconciled to God. He's bringing them together. The enmity, this conflict, this tension, this hostility, this struggle. Those are some words we could probably put in there. Enmity. That once existed between God and man, it's put to death at the cross. The catalyst for the enmity, it goes all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where we're at Genesis chapter 3. Before Genesis chapter 3, there doesn't seem to be, as you look at the scripture, doesn't seem to be that enmity. Seems to be quite the opposite. Seems to be beauty and perfection and holiness and wonderful fellowship. God has placed the animals in the garden. He's created male and female in his image. The man, Adam, he's taken, Genesis 2, 7, from the dust of the ground and he's breathed life into his nostrils and he became a living being. And, and the woman, he formed from the rib of Adam and God himself takes the woman, brings her to the man as a helper comparable to him. And you read in Genesis two twenty five, you see the last glimpse of no enmity between God and man. It says in 2.25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Just seven verses later, you read these words. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. That's Genesis 3, verse 7. Genesis 3 comes on the heels of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. God created. He established order. He creates male and female. He puts the sun and the moon and the stars in place. He sets limits upon the seas. Fills both land and water with creatures. And takes the seventh day to rest, acknowledging that what he created according to the end of Genesis chapter 1, was very good. You see, Genesis chapter 3 is a pivotal chapter in the whole of, whole of Scripture. It serves as an explanation for many of the things that happen in our world today. People like to ask the why question when bad things, hard things, difficult things come their way. In Genesis 3 is the short answer for why these bad things keep happening all around us. Not only is it the short answer, it's a short word. Sin. Not too many people today are bookmarking Genesis 3 as the source of the world's biggest problem. I don't know, I don't hear, I don't hear referencing or talking about anything in Genesis 3 going on around me. A lot of talk about 
education reforms, political reforms, health care reforms, marriage and family reforms, etc. We could just make a whole list. The solution is not throwing more dollars in any one of those buckets. The solution, church, is spiritual reform. Very few people today recognize sin as the problem. Very few call it sin, in fact. And yet the effects over the years have been devastating. Very few open Genesis 3 and believe it as God's truth. Too many are caught up, perhaps, in trying to wrap their brains around a speaking serpent conversing with a human being. How can that? That just, that's not right. And yet, and in doing so, they miss the truth. Genesis chapter 3 is a tragic scene for the first man and, and woman. Banned from the Garden of Eden due to their sin and the thought of what man might try to do next. That's the end of chapter 3. Having already disobeyed the previous instruction. Long before the arrival of Jesus, born of Mary, was the anticipation of his coming to earth. Jesus is referred to as the incarnate one. The one who came down out of the heavens. And as John chapter 1 says, he tabernacled here for a while on earth. Emmanuel, God with us. The Son of God was sent forth at just the right time. And he came not simply as one of God's good ideas. He came purposefully to save his people from their sins... And you know, in hearing those words from the angel of Matthew 1, 21, the question needs to be asked, when did his people begin sinning? He came to save them from their sins. When did his people begin sinning? How far back does that take us? And when you keep flipping the pages in scripture, you go all the way back to Genesis 3. His coming had to do with the sins of the people, which started in the beginning at some point following the perfect handiwork of God's creative order. You know, when you study a subject, it's good to know the origin. It's good to know the starting place, the beginning point, the history, how something got started. We're looking at the advent of Jesus today. And I want you to see through the lens of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 that God was even now in Genesis 3, he was even now planning to send his son Notice when you see God's plan put in motion. The principle here is so instructive for us as parents. I couldn't help but see it as a parent. I was reading this and I was noticing that God, in dealing with this sin, he deals with it not at some point down the road after they've sinned for a while. God deals with the sin problem of his male and female the first time they sinned. He addressed it. He deals with it. To do otherwise would have gone against his nature and his character. You see, because he's a holy God. God pronounces judgment on the serpent, the woman, and the man in that order in Genesis chapter 3. We learn, we learn something about God here in Genesis chapter 3. As a holy God, he will not condone sin among his own created beings. He, he not only addresses sin when it happens among his people, but he has a plan in motion to deal with that sin problem once for all. Let's pick it up in verse 8, Genesis chapter 3. Following their sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Then 
That question, church, is a hard one to... Because you see, I'm led to believe here by the scripture that there was this, for some time, we don't know, the scripture doesn't say, but at least for some period of time, there had been a pattern established of fellowship. And they hear the sound of the Lord God, and he asks the question. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, that woman... She gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Among the many things that could be said regarding the effects of man's sin, one effect that stands out very clearly in the text is broken fellowship. You get the idea that God and the first couple, they enjoyed some sweet times of fellowship in the garden. Imagine, just imagine, walking through a perfect garden and conversing with your creator. Sweet fellowship. Here they are now on the other side. Of verse 7, the sin, eyes of both of them opened. They knew they were naked. They started sewing leaves together, making themselves coverings. They're no longer walking hand in hand, it seems, awaiting the voice of the Lord God. Instead, the text says that they were hiding from the presence of the Lord God. They recognized they were naked. Their eyes had been open. Shame stood in the place where once they were unashamed. Genesis 2, verse 25. Notice that God's questions here are not specifically answered. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? You know, these questions of God, and we've talked about this before, and maybe applying this to Jesus as Jesus asks questions in the Gospels. When, when, when God and, and Jesus are asking questions, they're asking questions not because they don't know the answer. And I just imagine those questions that came to Adam. Well, we see the result. He's trying to hide. He doesn't want to have to deal with this. He's trying to skirt this, get around this. But I believe one of the other things we see here in Genesis chapter 3, lesson learned, if you will. You cannot hide from God in your sin. Some of you here today, perhaps, you're here today, praise the Lord, you're here. But some of you maybe are wallowing in some kind of sin right now in your life. And here's the thing. You don't think anybody sees it. You you might think you're getting away with it. When I open up the pages of Scripture, and I read this account here in Genesis chapter 3, it tells me something about God. It tells me something about me, about man. Can't hide from God. Can't hide from Him. There's a solution to this. It's not simply bad news. We'll get to the good news of it. Nevertheless, something to put forward and to consider this morning from the text. Adam, instead of taking responsibility for what had happened, he opts to blame the woman whom 
says, whom you gave to be with me. So he's doing two things here. He's placing blame on the woman, his wife. He's also placing blame on God for giving him this woman. Eve then gets a question from God. What is this you have done? Her response? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And true it is that she was deceived. The Bible verifies that. She was deceived. But here again, the finger of blame is pointed another direction. She points to the serpent as the guilty culprit. This talking serpent, the cunning, crafty serpent who engaged Eve in a conversation. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. What's the core of that dialogue between the serpent and Eve? What's at stake Two things. I want to give you two things. The first one is the authority of God's word. Has God indeed said? And the second one is the truth of God's word. You'll not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the the fall of man was predicated upon the, the authority of God and his word and the truth of his word. The serpent's crafty approach cast doubt upon the word of God and put into question the truth of his words. What was his word? Genesis 2, 16 and 17 tells us, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the serpent comes on the scene a few verses later and says, you'll not surely die. What God said, you shall surely die. You see, the serpent twists God's words, painting a different picture, coloring it in such a way that makes God out to be oppressive. This heavy-handed creator, not desiring any of his created beings to experience any fun at all. He's just squashing all of your fun. Church, we need to understand that the twisting of words is one of the serpent's greatest schemes. We see this in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, where there many were transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And he says, no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. If you look at the serpent's words, you see that some of his words are true. Some of them are. Some of them are also false. And his crafty schemes are meant to appeal to you. They're meant to draw your attention away from God, away from Christ, away from the truth of his word. And how often today is he still using this same tactic, (laughs) this same twist on words? Did God really say? Or surely God didn't mean for you to do without this in your life. Or you don't really think that he means for you to practice purity until you're married, do you? I mean, come on. That's old-fashioned. Do you see? He's still working that way today. What does the Word of God say? Are you going to operate according to your feelings? Are you going to operate according to your thoughts in the moment? The good ideas from some of your friends. Listen, some of you are receiving counsel from friends who are not giving you counsel from the truth of God's word. That's not the counsel you need to be getting. Some of you have gone and received counsel from someone who has pointed you to the things of the Lord, pointed you to the word of God, and then you go over here and you... You, you, you gain an ear to hear what this person has to say. You like what they have to say. 
because it allows you to do and to carry out the desire that you have. By the way, that's James chapter 1. That's where sin gets rooted, right? Desires within you. These things that you just want to do. There needs to be some discernment, church. Who are you listening to? What are you listening to? Music, online, internet, all the above. What are you listening to? What are you feeding on? Is it the truth of God's word? One writer said Eve tried to argue with him, but she failed and was eventually drawn into his scheme. She assessed, listen, this is important. She assessed the significance of the tree through her eyes rather than through her ears. Instead of listening to what God said about it, she thought about it only in terms of what she could see on that tree. After all, it looked delicious as well as attractive. She had not grasped this divine Principle that believers see with their ears, not with their eyes, by listening to God's word. Oh, that's good. That's so important for us. And this, of course, the writer says, is always the serpent's trick. I mean, think about it in the life of Achan. You remember Achan? Same kind of pattern. He saw, he desired, he coveted, he took. And then what did he do? Hid. David and Bathsheba, you remember what he did? We we could trace it in in, in some of the folks in Scripture. This is the same kind of pattern. Stand upon the truth of God's word. God provides, church, sound wisdom for operating on the right path. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs for just a moment. I believe it's well worth doing so here, spending a few moments Verse 7, I begin, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And all you're getting, get understanding. Look at verse 11. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. Dads and moms, I hope and pray that that's true of us, that we are teaching and leading our children in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Listen, avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. These are exhortations. These are imperatives. Don't do these things. For they do not sleep unless they've done evil and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Look at verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead, your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Church, the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth comes knowledge. That's what the word tells us. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He's given to us his words of truth. There are many lessons for the child of God to learn from Genesis chapter 3. It's important. Even in the midst of searching the scriptures for why Christ came down to earth, to simply talk about how he came to save his people from their sins without addressing this sin that still today easily entangles. We need to address this. We need to encourage one another to walk in righteousness. We need one another in the body to spur one another on in love, looking unto Jesus, taking up his word, and together in the Spirit, walking these truths out in obedience to God, under whose authority we desire to walk. You see, God's judgment is pronounced to the serpent, beginning in verse 14. You get the idea that Adam and Eve are present in the context as God speaks. 
Because you've done this. Because you've deceived. Because you have rebelled. Now see, we've got to remember that Satan himself is deceiving the man and the woman to do the very thing he himself did. You see, because the evil one desired authority, power, to be like God. These things that he's telling Eve in that conversation, Serpent knew very well. says, you are more cursed than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. Most of us, all we know about a snake is that that's where it's, it's on its belly. We have no idea. There's some speculation as to whether or not the serpent was upright in speaking to Eve not the point of the passage. Don't get lost in it. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now look at verse 15. That's where I want to want us to see and look at the remainder of our time. You see, this is, this is a verse that, that helps explain, I believe, in many ways the whole of scripture. It sets in motion something bigger than Adam and Eve eating of fruit from a tree in the garden. It's easy to read Genesis chapter 3 and see yourself far removed from what went on there and yet I want you to know you're connected to what went on there. Seeing that Adam is your representative according to Romans 5 verse 12 through whom sin entered the world and through whom death spread. Listen to what the Lord God says. And I will put, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right here in Genesis 3.15, the gospel light of hope shines brightly. Terms that maybe we're more familiar with in the New Testament, such as justification and salvation and forgiveness, they're absent specifically in this text. And so you might be inclined to ask, where, where is the gospel? And to that point, I believe one writer says this very well. He says... God's words here in Genesis 3.15 place all the emphasis on conflict. I'll put enmity, conflict, hostility, struggle. God's words here place all the conflict, the emphasis on conflict, and therefore on our need to be delivered from bondage to the evil one, so that we are no longer the prisoners Paul says in Ephesians, of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Conflict. The Bible captures this conflict from Genesis to Revelation. The, the progression of conflict is outlined right here in Genesis 3, verse 15. Enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Two individuals. Enmity between your seed and her seed. Speaking about the line, if you will, the lineage, the years that are going to span from where we're at right here in Scripture. As we'll see just in a moment, we're going to turn to the last book of the Bible and see a, a similar picture. We're going to see a picture, another picture that's given to us in Revelation of the same conflict that's being spoken of right here. I want you to see through the lens of God's word that Christ's coming to earth was to deal with this conflict head on 
once for all. To undo what had been done through the first Adam. You see, the last Adam, Christ, would turn the tide against the powers of darkness and he would set us free from the bondage that for so long had taken us captive. And time and time again throughout Scripture, you see the conflict arising between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Even in the very next chapter, you see that in motion already. A glimpse of the conflict. Cain and Abel. Doesn't take too long, does it? Struggle. Conflict leading to death. In Exodus, you see Pharaoh, the mighty Egyptians at conflict with God's people. In Leviticus, you begin to see the laws put in place to make atonement for what? Sin. Pointing to the day when the seed of the woman would come as the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. John 1.29, this Lamb of God that was going to take away the sins of the world. In Numbers, the conflict continues as the people of God roam in the wilderness out of disobedience to God. In Deuteronomy, the children of God are situated on the plains of Moab and they're preparing to cross into the promised land. Conflict awaits them. According to Moses, there are people in the land who do not hold fast to God as the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Why? Because there was going to be a people crossing over who did not hold to one God. But multiple gods, there was going to be conflict. All the more reason to love the Lord your God. See, this conflict is going to pull you away from God. It's going to set before you other gods to serve. That's what Moses is getting at in that passage. In Joshua, the call goes forward to choose this day whom you will serve. The conflict is seen in Joshua's declaration. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the midst of conflict, church, I praise the Lord for men like Joshua who put a stake in the sand and declare their allegiance. Men, do you see that you are in a battle for the souls of each one in your household? Each one in your household. Are you aware of the conflict that is being waged for your souls? Judges is a cycle of conflict. Samuel and the prophets are dealing with conflict, trying to call God's people to attention to help them see the holiness of God and instruct them in paths of righteousness. The kings who ruled over God's people, many of them stirred up this conflict even more and neighboring lands as God's judgment upon his people would come and would take them captive for time. The conflict continues throughout the pages of Scripture. And while the conflict went on in the Old Testament, it was, always, it was always pointing toward the mediator of the conflict, the seed of the woman. You see, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Turn with me for just a moment to another picture, a wonderful picture that the Bible gives us. Turn to the last book of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. I hope that phrase sounds familiar. The one who was going to rule with a rod of iron. Psalm chapter 2, I believe, gives us that picture as well. And her child was caught up to God in his throne Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Keep reading. And war broke out in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. Do you see that? Called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. When did that deception, when do we, when do we see the, the beginning point of that? Genesis chapter 3. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having, what? Great wrath. Because he knows that he has a short time. And when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. She might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away. Do you see this conflict here going on between the serpent and the woman? Do you see this? I want you to see this. And the, and the seed of the woman. Look at 17, the last verse of chapter 12. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Church, we, we, we've been reading in the first book of the Bible and, and now referencing the last book of the Bible. This conflict that we're talking about, this enmity that's put forth in Genesis chapter 3 by God himself. He's putting this enmity in place, this conflict. But he's not just putting conflict in place, he's also providing a solution to the conflict. And it was going to come one day in the seed of this woman, being Jesus Christ, God's only son. If you flip a few pages to the left in the New Testament, you see these words in 1 John chapter 3. Again, speaking to God's purpose in sending his son, verse 5, chapter 3, 1 John, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Do you see, this is, this is one of the reasons he came. We talk about Christmas as though it's some... We, we get caught up in the glamorization of Christmas. Who are we listening to? What is Christmas? Listen, side note on this, Christmas... If you think that simply reading Luke chapter 2, as good as Luke chapter 2 is, if you think that reading Luke chapter 2 is going to be sufficient, put a nice little spiritual ribbon on your picture of Christmas, we're missing it. Because there are so many things in the course of Scripture, and what we're talking about this morning spans the entirety of the Scriptures. This conflict, this enmity, and the solution to it. God brings about the solution, and he's orchestrating a solution in the seed of the woman named Jesus. Have you noticed, in fact, how often in the Gospels Jesus is confronted with demon-possessed people? Have you noticed that? Now, there's some who are quick to point out that, well, in the first century, there were just a lot of demon-possessed folks. Well, that may be true, maybe, 
But I believe what you're seeing there is another example and action of the conflict that's expressed in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, that serpent of old, is unleashing his legions of seed upon the seed of the woman, Christ. You see the serpent influencing the seed of the woman in Matthew's gospel. If you read Matthew chapter 16, you remember the story. Peter's just gotten a right answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember that? And then Jesus tells them once again that he is going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And then Peter stands beside and he begins to rebuke him, saying, far be it from this shall not happen. In other words, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. What's he say? Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are a stumbling block to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. But you see, the influence of the serpent didn't stop with Peter. He kept on going. There's another attack of the serpent influencing the seed of the woman. It's in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, you see this one. I mean, you can see glimpses of this all over the place in the scripture. Luke chapter 22 Just reading the first few verses. The feast of unleavened bread drew near, called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him. That's Jesus. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas. Then Satan entered Judas. Surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. Oh, of course they were. And agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. You see, this conflict continues after Christ's death, after his burial, after his resurrection and ascension. And yet, the conflict is put to rest. It's put to rest in the arrival of God's Son. You see, the conflict is stamped out officially at the cross. At the cross. Enmity is put to death at the cross. The arrival of Jesus is not some warm, fuzzy Christmas story. Let's be clear on this. Seen through the pages of God's word, it's the arrival of the one who will finally make all things right. The arrival of one who will resolve all conflict once and for all at the cross. The one who will crush the head of the serpent and do for us what we could never do on our own. In fact, I believe that's what Paul's looking forward to in his final triumph of Christ. This triumph of Christ as he concludes the book of Romans chapter 16. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, 37, that even in spite of the sufferings that might come our way in Christ, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God sent his son to live and die, but also to put to death the enmity. How did he love us? He loved us with the cross. This enmity that existed back in Genesis 3, enmity that came as a result of man's sin. Your sin is connected to that first sin back in the garden. And this Christmas, I would hope that you would remember the reason for Christ's arrival to earth. We're going to be talking about some other lenses through which we can see the arrival of Christ in these next four weeks. We're going to spend a few weeks, I believe, talking about looking at some of the prophets. We're going to look in the Gospels themselves and get a perspective from Jesus himself in the Gospels. And then look at the perspective from Anna and Simeon and the arrival of the Christ child and what that meant how they saw that arrival of the Christ child. This conflict continues, church, continues to go on in the church. It's important as Christmas that we remember a Savior. Yes, a Savior has been born to you. The Savior came as a baby and he grew up to be a man. He's our intercessor, mediator, First Timothy says. The one who would serve as our great high priest, offering himself as the sufficient substitute atonement for our sins at the cross. So this morning, church, it's important, significant that we see Genesis 3, verse 15. 
Perhaps we read it this morning and we see it in a little bit different light. It's seen in something other than something other than just something that took place thousands of years ago in a garden. Two people eating of the tree they were told not to eat from. But we would begin to see that what happened back then started this conflict, this tension, this struggle. This sin that began, that through one man, Adam, began in Genesis chapter 3, has continued. There ought to be much rejoicing in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the conflict is now settled at the cross. Yes, it continues and we await for his return. It's important that we take up As Paul says, that armor of God. And there's one piece of armor that's real significant there that he talks about. It's a shield of what? Shield of faith. What do we do with that shield of faith? Extinguishes all the what? Flaming arrows of the evil one. As we look at Genesis chapter 3, we see through the lens and through the eyes of God and his word that the arrival of Christ looks a bit differently, doesn't it? Looks a little different than maybe just reading the Gospels alone, than just reading the birth account of Christ, as important and significant as that is. We see through the lens of God and His Word the beginnings of how this all began, how this all started. And we see through the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation how this conflict is raging. And the hope that we have and the encouragement we have in Christ Jesus is this, that even amidst all the conflict, we have one who has settled the conflict. We have one who has finished the course, the author and perfecter of the faith. That's why we're called, church, to look unto Jesus, to run this race of faith looking unto Jesus not turning aside to the right or to the left. Keep your eyes upon Christ. The Lord pronounced enmity in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, upon the woman and the serpent, and upon her seed and the serpent's seed. And the good news of the gospel is also found right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. For we see there that he, Christ, the seed of the woman, was going to crush the head of the serpent. And he did just that. Allowing us to be now more than conquerors through him who loved us through that cross. It's good news, church. Praise the Lord for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for your truth. Grateful for your authority in our lives. Father, I pray that we would recognize the schemes of the evil one. That in recognizing these schemes, that we would desire even more to walk wholeheartedly with you. Help us, Father, to see, not just with our eyes. Help us to see through our ears to be able to see and hear what your word has to say. Help us to take what your word has to say and to walk in obedience to what your word has to say. Sometimes, Lord, when we get into dialoguing and conversation, we can start rationalizing things, rationalizing our behaviors. Father, I pray we would learn lessons from what we see in the scriptures. Pray that we would walk in wisdom and understanding, that we would in all things get wisdom. Father, you provide this wisdom. And you've called us simply to ask. You are a generous God and you'll give to all without finding fault. Lord, we thank you that you are the giver of wisdom. And we thank you, Father, most of all for Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for the work of sending your son, the plan that you had from long ago to provide a sufficient substitute, an atoning sacrifice who would take our place and do what we could never do on our own. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, cleansing, covering. Father, it's, it's interesting in Genesis chapter 3 to be able to see that man tried to cover themselves, but at the end of Genesis chapter 3 that you provide a covering for them. That in and of itself foreshadowing the covering of your blood which was to come through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. We thank you for covering us with your blood. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.